This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Suvi Rautio, one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have Harriet Evans, who is Emeritus Professor of Chinese Cultural Studies at the University of Westminster and Visiting Professor in Anthropology at the, at the London School of Economics. Harriet Evans is here to talk about her new book, Beijing from Below, Stories of Marginal Lives in the Capital Center, published in 2020 by Duke University Press. In Beijing from Below, Harriet Evans captures the last gasps of life in one of Beijing's poorest neighborhoods, Dashilar, before it disappears into a mapped out, shiny, regenerated zone for commercialism and so-called cultural protection. Drawing upon many years of conversation with residents and archival research, her work presents rare and deeply engaging stories of the capital city's marginalized long-term residents. Told and compiled through Harriet Evans' illustrative writing, their narratives are brought to life to challenge China's hegemonic historical narrative from which their stories have been absent. An excellent companion for China and urban studies specialists, but also broadly for anyone interested in the historical task of giving marginalized, po- giving marginalized populations recognition and voice, Beijing from Below is a timely book that makes visible a world that would otherwise disappear in history. Harriet, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you. It's a great honor to be here, Suvi. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for joining us. I'd like to begin by asking you about your background and how you grew to be interested in the history of Beijing, but also more specifically, what drove you to write a book about Beijing's marginal lives? Okay. I mean, um, I could um, spend the entire podcast talking about that, but I won't. I'll try and keep it free. (laughs) So, I mean, Beijing has been, you know, part of my long life with China ever since um, I first went there as an undergraduate in 1975. So I was there for a couple of years um, in what, first of all, uh, was the uh, Yuan Xuan, the Beijing Languages Institute. And then I was in Beida for um, a year and a half. And um, so got to know Beijing at that time very, very well. Since then, um, I have repeatedly visited Beijing as well as other parts of China. My research um, has largely, until this book, my research and my publications have mainly been on women's lives, gender, and sexuality in China. Um, I came to wanting to do, uh, I came to um, the research that eventually produced this book in um, 2005, when I was um, in the final stages of my last, uh, my the previous uh, book that I'd published called um, The Subject of Gender, Daughters and Mothers in 
urban, contemporary urban China. And I was humming and hawing about what my next project was going to be. And at that moment, I, I'd become very concerned with um, how to, with the question of how to teach the intensity and speed and difficulties and challenges of urban change, particularly in Beijing, to my undergraduate students who had very, very little understanding and certainly no personal experience of the huge changes that uh, Beijing and other cities had gone through. And to begin with, um, I had an idea of producing a kind of a, a, a narrative of um, the history of spatial and social change in one neighborhood in Beijing through um, photographs and documentary evidence and so on and so forth. While I was toying with that idea, I was introduced to an extraordinary photographer called uh, Zhao Tielin, who was a very controversial photographer. And um, I was introduced to him by friends in uh, Beijing University. And um, because he um, had been compiling a photographic record of everyday life in Dashalar, this neighborhood, since 1997. So I met him in 2005. And I mean, he was a very extraordinary character who died um, in 2009 of lung cancer, I think, and died, you know, very sadly before um, he, this book could see the light of day. But he and I hit it off and I learned an extraordinary amount through him. And through him, I decided, and he introduced me to the people he had got to know in Dashalar some of whom um, are present, I talk about in my book, and I got to know very well. So um, I decide I began hanging out with him and um, learning a lot about this um, dilapidated, deprived neighborhood as we walked around its um, small lanes and alleys. And, um, and through him, I was given a card of entry into people's homes who I think it would have been very, very difficult for me as a foreign researcher to have got to know otherwise. So, you know, I'm internally grateful to him and it's my deep sadness that he's not around to see this book. Yeah, and, and you mentioned that in quite a few um, occurrences in your book as well, um, your your relation to Zhao Tianlian and, and, and therefore... To, to the neighborhood, um, your material really opens up. Um, in, in, in each chapter, you really open up these the lives um, that you, the families um, and their lives that you got to know in this area of Dashilar. Um, and by doing so, the reader really feels, or I really felt as the reader that I, I had returned to Beijing. Yeah. You, your chapters <laughs> are so rich in detail. Um, and you draw on kind of sensorial, social, emotional, and um, the infrastructural qualities that make up this neighborhood. Um, before we delve into these family narratives that make up the main body of your book, perhaps you could tell us a bit more about 
Doshalar. Um, for those of our listeners who have not yet read have, who have not yet read your work and are also maybe unfamiliar with this part of Beijing. Yeah, I mean, at this point, it's too bad that the podcast doesn't permit me to show a map, which ideally mm. I would like to do. So, and um, I mean, that, that for those of you who don't know uh, Beijing at all, the center of Beijing is one of the world's largest and most monumental squares that took its current shape um, in the late 1950s. To the north of this square is the um, old imperial palace, the imperial city, on the front of which hangs a large portrait of Mao Zedong, who was chairman of the newly founded People's Republic of China between 1949 and his death in 1976. It's a vast, absolutely vast square. Um, and in the middle of the square now stands the mausoleum to Mao Zedong. To the southwest of the square is Dashalar, this tiny, um, dilapidated neighborhood, which now is in its, um, you know, experiencing basically its death throes as it is. Um, gentrified and modernized. So um, now I think now, I mean, many of the its former um, long-term residents, like those whose stories I tell in the book, um, who were born and brought up in Dashalar, they, uh, very few of them um, remain in the neighborhood in contrast, now the estimate is that something like 60 to 70% of the local population are migrant um, laborers who have come from different parts of China. It's a very mixed neighborhood, and its history has been very, very mixed of Hui Muslims, of um, prostitutes, sex workers rickshaw drivers, um, street vendors, and opera singers, as well, of course, in the 19th century, of officials, Han officials, who were not allowed to live in within the, the, within the premises of the imperial city um, under the segregationist laws of the Manchu dynasty, who um, lived in a provincial houses in, in what they, they call them sort of native place um, houses in Dashalar and who went there for, for the eateries and for the opera and its many different kinds of leisure and pleasure delight. So it was a very, historically, it was a very, very mixed and vibrant neighborhood with um, the poorest and the wealthiest artisans and artists and singers, as well as impoverished beggars and so on and so forth. So a neighborhood of, a mixed neighborhood of, of great contrasts. Yeah, and, and each chapter, so you, you have seven chapters and your, your, your book, Beijing from Below, is made up of, of seven chapters just for the, the audience who, 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 just for the audience's understanding who, who haven't yet looked at your book. Um, and in each of these chapters, you do really draw out um, just how much of a melting pot Bachelard, this, this neighborhood is. 
um, and each chapter you you devote um, you do, you divide you devote each chapter to describing the local lives um, through conversations and encounters with a single family whose mm-hmm. stories you narrate um, through one or two members of that family. And the title of each chapter follows the pseudonym you have given to the member of the family that the chapter focuses on. This is just for so the audience knows that if I refer to a name, then that's also that that might be the chapter title that we're referring to. Yeah. And um, just now you were talking about the melting pot of people that, or this kind of large mixture of people that, that and the history that Dashilar is made up of. And you start your book with um, the oldest residents or the oldest people that you got to know in, in Dashilar and the, the neighbor, the people who have lived there the longest. So old Mrs. Gao yeah. and her family's narrative makes up chapter two of your book. Chapter one is the introduction to Dashilar and chapter two is old Mrs. Gao and her family's narrative. Poverty, sickness, starvation, pride, family, loyalty, betrayal, and violence. These are some of these qualities that come forth in old Mrs. Gao's life history that anchor her presence in the neighborhood and hold together her dense relationships. Could you tell us a bit more about old Mrs. Gao and how Dashilar was crucial to her sense of being an identity? Yeah. I mean, old Mrs. Gao... Um, she um, was the oldest person I got to know in the neighborhood. Um, she passed away a few years ago, sadly, one year after she um, moved out of the neighborhood. I can describe that if, if there's time. She was completely illiterate and um, didn't have any exact um understanding of how old she was when she moved into the neighborhood. But she, um, between um, my understanding of her story and what Jodhielin told me, she moved into the neighborhood in 1937 um, when she married the uh, a, a young man who was then apprenticed as a shoemaker. She had had uh, a childhood, an infancy and childhood of extreme poverty. Um, in She wasn't born and brought up in Dashilar. She was sold, her father died soon after she was born. And um, her incredibly poor mother, already with three other children, decided to... Um, make an arrangement for her, old Mrs. Gao, as a five-year-old girl, to be sold, quote-unquote, as what um, people generally think of as a child bride to a family um, in another neighbourhood of Beijing. In this family, so uh, the, the idea of a child bride was a child, a girl, who was betrothed to an older boy um, to whom, uh, who would be able to marry um, when they came of age. But in effect, the child bride was, um, in many, many situations, was was in effect a servant, another pair of hands um, in a household that also was, that wasn't terribly rich, and that needed um, labor in the household and could use this system as a way of securing 
um, a marriage for their son. She hated this. Um, on her own account, she hated this um, arrangement, and she repeatedly ran away. And um, she finally succeeded in running away when she was 10. And she then went to live with one of her then married elder sisters in Beijing. And then to cut a longer story short, she um, she became employed as a servant to various people and eventually through a connection of her elder brother, met the man in Dashalar who became her husband in 1937. She then, um, thereafter, so in 1937, Beijing was a scene for poor people like um, old Mrs. Gao. Beijing was a scene of conflict, of armed conflict, of war, of gangs, of depredation of um, terrible, terrible scarcity. And um, she, between 1937 and the 1940s, she had, um, her first child was um, died. And then come 1942, if I remember correctly, I may not remember correctly, I can look it up in the book, um, she had her first child, and um, by the early People's Republic in 1949, she had a third child. Then young Gao, who was her youngest son, who also features quite prominently in this chapter, he was born in the height of the Great Famine that affected poor families very, very badly in Beijing. I mean, this is another chapter, if you like, to the history of the Great Famine, which is generally told with reference to the appalling um, devastation and mortality rate in the countryside. The, the story of the famine in um, city areas, in impoverished urban areas is, you know, awaits further research. But between, um, between her marriage and when she left Dashalar, um, a year and a half before she died, uh, following the death of young Gao, her son, she had never left the neighborhood. She'd never been on a train. She had no so place for her. Mm. The place of Dashalar was absolutely crucial in shaping the spatial, physical, material, emotional, and social boundaries of her existence. She knew had no other she had no other experience of a social world. Yeah, I think that that really does come out strongly in in the chapter itself, and 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 how you how you describe her. Story and also her children's story, and then how they kind of move out from Dashila, if I remember correctly, um, and then this kind of the, 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 her children's um, access to to other um, space because of the marketization value of of how Beijing is is developing. Mm. Um, so it really kind of um, this kind of transformation, perhaps rupture of being an identity. Um, but that's another conversation altogether. 
in chapter three, you move on to Zhao Yong. Can, can I can I add something to um, what I said about old Mrs. Gao? Um, I think it's important. Her her husband died uh, before I got to know her in two thousand and six, two thousand and seven. She um, he died um, a few years beforehand, but she had long enjoyed a reputation in the neighborhood of being um, an incredibly determined, resilient, um, upstanding woman who um, was the linchpin of her family's unity. She was also very, very, and she was proud of this. She was proud of the, in her own words, she said, I've never done anything that I could be ashamed of. Mm. You know, so she was claiming a sense of virtue in having kept her family going through thick and thin when mm. with very, very little few resources. Yeah, that's it's really, really amazing, really very moving. Um, so um, I kind of wanted to delve a bit more into into how you write about history and memory through these people's lives, because mm. um, these are the main themes, at least how I understood these are the main themes of, of Beijing from below. And um, and it's also a, a way of kind of how people form their narratives. I mean, these, these stories that you tell are narratives that are drawn on the past that are then told to you as a source of explanation mm. to explain the present. Um, and at the same time, by by you giving by you writing about these narratives, you treat their memories um, of these residents in Dashula. You're treating their memories as historical material and giving them voice. And this comes out um, in particular through the character in chapter three with Zhao Yong, yeah, who gives um, attention. Um, who, as a reader, I was given attention to how the urban poor experienced the Maoist era and particularly the Cultural Revolution. And you describe um, through Zhao Yong's narrative that this um, era was not a state of exception, but as one moment in the bigger history mm. of hardship, of neglect, of discrimination and precarity, which continues to this day. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Um, how does Dashilar as a home and symbolic place of belonging in the margins? Tell us about memory and how do people make sense of the past? Mm. I mean, again, this is a very, very big question. And as you say, it kind of runs through the entire book. And I think, you know, all of the characters whose stories I narrate in the book, they their memories kind of play, um, play different things for them. Um, but mm. for all of them, in general terms, I think their memories um, are... And of course, their memories are what counts as their truth. You know, their memories don't necessarily correspond with um, any notion of historical truth that is present in the archives. But although that is something that I found very, very interesting in my research for this book, the ways in which um, people's memories and the archival record sort of intersect, sometimes contrast, kind of move in and out of each other, um, but um, and the and the memories. I mean, for people like old Mrs. Gao and Zhao Yong, Zhao Yong had rarely left. I mean, Zhao Yong was a very, um, very curious character, and 
who ha I think had many, many kind of hidden qualities that he kept from me. And, you know, he had strange kind of business activities that he was very um, unforthcoming about. And his wife um, would kind of look at me quite wryly as if to say, you know, he's got all sorts of things going on up his sleeve that she didn't know about either. But um, his, I mean, for, for characters like him and old Mrs. Gao, for whom the actual physical space and boundaries of Dashalar were incredibly um, important in forming their, in, in bounding, if you like, their worldview. You know, it's their memories of life in Dashalar which uh, became part of their own, the way that they made sense of their pasts in the present. So in that sense, you can think that their memories become, you know, part of their own histories, even if they're not, um, and then part of a broader history. That's one of the arguments I make um, in the book, even if they're not considered part of history in any more conventional historiographical framework. But his, I mean, you mentioned his experience during the Cultural Revolution. So his father and his mother were originally from the countryside out in the suburbs of Beijing. And they, both of them, came from um, families with um, that were sort of small entrepreneurs. and But because of their class background in 1949, Zhao Yong's parents, both of them, were um, categorized as small landlords. For those of you who don't know the history of um, the People's Republic in this period, all citizens were um, classified according to certain class categories in the nineteen in the in nineteen forty nine and the early nineteen fifties, and it was through these class categories that people. Um, were either were um, encouraged into collectives in the countryside or um, were allocated work under a system of state allocation of employment. As um, individuals who were classified as small landlords, Zhao Yong's parents were um, ostracized and also, his mother um, had some kind of a breakdown. Um, he wasn't, Zhao Yong wasn't clear when, but when I met her, she suffered from terrifying paranoid delusions. And she, and for that matter, Zhao Yong and his entire family had long had a local reputation of being kind of slightly crazy, to put it um, mildly. I mean, local people were not polite about them at all. In the Cultural Revolution, because of, I mean, again, you know, this is a a, a, a dimension to the um, Red Guard period of the Cultural Revolution that hasn't adequately been covered in the available literature. In the Cultural Revolution, because of Zhao Yong's parents' class background, and the point I make in the book is that poverty did not protect them from the attacks of the Red Guards. 
and Zhao Yong's father was humiliated and beaten up in front of Zhao Yong as a small boy in the um, in 1967 at the height of the Red Guard uh, period and um, was then um, sent off to the countryside together with Zhao Yong's mother. And Zhao Yong, as a small kid, kind of basically had to fend for himself um, on the streets of Dashalar. But he narrates this episode as, I mean, in contrast to um, those we know who have written about their victim status in the Cultural Revolution, um, who are large, largely come from, not exclusively, but largely come from um, an educated, elite, relatively elite urban background, and who've been able to make um, a lot of money and an international name for themselves by claiming um, victim status in the Cultural Revolution. Mm -hmm. Jung had no, I mean, I think that this is a crucial difference, if I'm making sense. Mm -hmm. Zhao Jung um, had no interest in claiming, um, had no interest in claiming a certain status that could be instrumental in his own commercial or social success by the fact that his father was beaten up in front of his eyes when he was a small kid. On the contrary, I mean, the themes that emerge most powerfully through his um, story, that the, his narrative, are themes of um, relentless scarcity, precarity, ostracization, and poverty, and misery, and depression. And mm -hmm. um, yes, so, so in that sense, if I'm making sense, you know, the Cultural yeah. Revolution is by no means, you know, the worst, The wor I mean, it's a very particular moment of um, hardship and suffering, which was clearly etched on Zhao Yong's memory. But at the time, through the years that I talked with him between 2007 and 2014, he never, ever suggested that the Cultural Revolution, because of that experience, was worse than anything else. I mean, it was a singular moment, but it was not, it didn't give him a particular status in the way that it's been given in the victim literature, if I can put it like that. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, thank you for, for, for explaining our listeners um, about that in more detail, because I think that really does come out clearly in your chapters. And, and just now, as you were talking about the the victim status that especially Zhao Yong, but I do think that many of the other, um, the, many of your other friends in Dashalar kind of um, take on. 
um, is that they even you as a listener, they're not talking to you waiting for that victimization. They're quite the contrary, that they're not there to tell you these stories um, seeking for pity or humiliation yeah. or, or anything of the sort. And very much you as the listener are not giving them that judgment. Mm. Um, at least that's the way that, that your your chapters um, kind of describe their lives. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if we could move on to the next theme, mm. family and expectations of gender. Um, I think this was probably one of my favorite themes in Beijing from Below because it kind of interlaces each of your chapters it's continuously coming and going through um through the quotes of of your friends in Dashilar, um through their um descriptions of who they are their descriptions of their past and of course then through the analysis you do um you do delve into um gender and family mm. um in in the interludes to each of your chapters and i think one for me um when this theme came out um kind of most strongly was in chapter um chapter four with Hua Mei Ling's yeah. um, character. Um and she's just um I mean the way you describe her is just um incredible. She's strong, she's an impressive woman, um, and you describe her to be very lavishly feminine her in her presentation and yet she's chain smoking, she's loud, she's witty, um, she makes um, jokes at the expense of others um she's not she's anything but but shy and mm. and um and fragile mm. um so she's this very bold independent minded woman and yet um the way that you describe her expectations of gender and and very much her dependence of men um the men in her life um there's this kind of paradox in who she is mm. um do you mind telling telling us a bit more about that? Um, how did the expectations of gender play a role in Hua Mei Ling's life? Um, and you can, of course, then broaden out to the other lives yeah. of people that you befriended in Dashiell. Yeah, I mean, if I may, I'd like to just preface um, my response to that by saying, when I first started, I mean, I in in the introduction, I noted how um, my research and my publications before this book had really focused very um, explicitly on women's lives and the constitution of gender through women's lives told on the basis of um, textual evidence as well as ethnographic evidence. This was the first, when I started formulating this um, project as a research project in 2005, between 2005 and 2007, I didn't at the time um, imagine that it was going to be a project about gender. But as, you know, gender is at the centre, however one defines it, is, you know, one of the key axes through which I see the world and I understand the world and I understand politics and as I got to know local um, individuals and local families better, I realized that gender gender difference and the ways in which uh, people like Hua Meiling, but not only Hua Meiling and others, including Zhao Yong and uh, mm-hmm. Yang Gao in, in the chapter two, you know, so I'm by no means talking about gender expectations um, interchangeably with expectations of women, 
but in mm. but but the the, the uh, I mean again, however um, one defines or thinks um, gender, it sort of made its way into my understanding of the people I was getting to know in Dashalar. Um, coming to Huameling, Huameling to begin with was an extremely intimidating um, person. I found her very very intimidating. And even though I speak Chinese relatively fluently, I found her local um, Dashalar slang kind of really, really difficult to keep pace with. So um, in the early stages, Jodhielin, of course, was very, very helpful in decoding um, some of the witticisms and the obscenities that um, she indulged in. She was an extraordinary woman who had um, was was um, estranged from her parents. She had um, spent three years in detention for prostitution in the early 1980s, when um, during the um, campaign. Um, what was it called? The campaign against spiritual pollution, and she was, and I cynically, or rather ironically, um, on one occasion she said to me that yes, she had left Beijing, but the only time she'd left Beijing was when she was sent into detention for those three years. She in detention for three years. Um, it was a very very tough experience. When she um, emerged, she eventually married somebody who was then jailed for um, violent robbery. And um, he died not soon. And, and he, he was jailed after she gave birth to a, a girl, a, a daughter, who I did get to know. After he, I never met him because he had died before I got to know her. But on his release, he died fairly soon after he was released from jail. She then um, was introduced to a man I call Brave Lee in the book. I never met him. And she became his mistress for 14 years. And she very much enjoyed, um, I mean, I think that they had a fairly kind of violent relationship on and off from her descriptions, but they enjoyed a kind of companionship. They used to watch pornographic films together. She used to cook for him. And they, I mean, they, they seemed to have, you know, reached some kind of um, exchange that they both enjoyed. She very much enjoyed having a strong, a man she called a strong man around, even though she, and he gave her a monthly allowance, but her main source of income was um, as she she had various jobs during the years that I knew her as a cleaner and washing up in restaurants, in shops, um, and um, looking after elderly people in the local neighborhood. And she was very proud of her economic independence, even though um, she was worried about what. So her, I'm just running, running. I'm running before I can walk here. So her, her, 
Her daughter um, was 17 when I first got to know Kwame Ling. And when I first met her, her daughter had run away to Fujian with a man she had met online um, whom she hoped to marry. But um, she returned fairly soon afterwards because the man's parents refused to um, give their blessing to their son's marriage to um, Mailing's daughter. Thereafter, um, the, do- the daughter was very, very poorly educated and she had a facial disfigurement um, which made her socially kind of very shy, very reticent. It, I had to work really, really hard to um, enable her to even just exchange a couple of brief words with me. And her major enjoyment in life was um, online dating and looking at fashions um, on online websites. She had a couple of very, very short-term jobs um, when I knew her, but they didn't last for long because she wasn't really interested in um, maintaining them. Kwame Ling, um, even though she was, you know, fiercely proud of her economic dependent independence, she was indulgent of her daughter to um, a great, very, very great extent. And, you know, she, her advice to her daughter was not to work and, you know, and, and, um, find an independent job as she herself had done, but by finding a man whom she could marry. And, you know, her advice, I mean, in the words that she used with me were, um, you know, as long as um, she puts good food on a table for him and the house is tidy when he comes back from work, he will be happy with her as a wife. So her advice to her daughter was, um, to marry and find a man as being the best, um, the as being a kind of the best source of support that her daughter could look um, to um, for her future welfare. So, in that sense, there was a you know a real sort of inconsistency in Huame Ling's um, in the way she presented herself as a gendered person as a woman, you know, on the one hand, being fiercely proud of her independence, claiming her virtue in having worked hard to keep her and her daughter going, and yet at the same time, um, relying in part for her own sense of dignity on the presence of a strong man around and um, advising her daughter to marry as the best way of securing her future livelihood. And, you know, that, I've, I mean, of course, we're not talking about um, a, a kind of model of patriarchy in any traditional sense. But I do in the book and elsewhere, I've kind of described this inconsistency as what I call a sort of patchy patriarchy, a kind of uneven reconfiguration of patriarchal assumptions that are 
um, cut through with um, other assumptions which correspond more with needs of economic independence. Yeah, you do. You do refer to that in the book, and 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 also just now, as you described at the beginning um, of, of of when you when you started to answer my question, was um, that this wasn't bound into to woman alone. And I think this yeah. is also something that you really do draw out really, really clearly, and and um, convincingly using um, kind of Sangren's work on um, masculine yep. um, this kind of the fetishization of of of, um, of patriarchy in a way and um, if I remember correctly you use the word kind of strong masculinity to yeah. describe many of the male characters that you got to know um, um, just now as you were describing Hua Mei Ling's story and especially her daughter's story um, again this theme of precarity um, came out very strongly and um, in chapter five um, when you move on to the story of Li Fuying and yeah. his family who are a migrant family from Shanxi um this this chapter i think for me really was um it really opened my eyes to understand just how much again of how much a melting pot um Dashlar is mm-hmm. is and um i think if i remember correctly this is the only migrant family that you really did get to know yep. in Dashlar but as you described now was it 70% of the neighborhood is is made up of of um kind of um chinese citizens who've come from outside beijing um so Li Fuying's family, um, Li Fuying and his wife in particular, um, their story is is just heartbreaking. Yeah. I mean, it really, it's um, the 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 way you describe their um, path to get to Beijing and and kind of where they stand today is one um, of of um, facing harassment, abuses of power, mm. state violence, um, and this is something um, that is. Um, very common amongst um, China's vulnerable population who just don't have the infrastructure to get by. Um, but perhaps you could tell us a bit more about um, the kind of physical and spatial pressures that come with um, families such as Li Fuying who are faced with eviction and relocation um, and um, by, by living in, in, in a neighborhood mm. that they just aren't given the infrastructure to get by. Mm. Yes, I mean, you're right. I mean, this is, I mean, I too find their story, you know, completely heartbreaking. And um, I can sort of come to why uh, in, a, in, a, in a second after um, I try to answer your question. So the physical and spatial pressures. I mean, their story of life in Dashlar was. Um, they couldn't wait to leave, basically, and um, because they felt that they were endlessly, repeatedly disdained by um, local um, old Beijingers, so-called, you know, people like um, Yang Gao and even Hua Meiling. In fact, on one occasion, um, I was with um, Hua Meiling in a cab. Um, going back to Dashalar from elsewhere, and Hua Meiling began to hurl obscenities, not at Li Fuying, but at, to another um, pedicab cyclist who was in the way impeding the easy um, passage of the cab, of the taxi. 
and she was hurling obscenities to him um you know on the grounds that she assumed that he was from outside beijing so mm-hmm. that you know but that was one of the few instances of outright kind of um discrimination against um outsiders from local people that i saw but um so li fuying and his wife lived in a single tiny room in a big cluttered courtyard in um dashalar and they felt that they were um targeted as um because of their um, migrant status by the landlord um of the um big cluttered courtyard um and who would periodically ask them for hush money um and who never ever lifted a single finger to help them with broken electrics or anything like you know the kind of stuff that you would imagine that a private landlord normally would be responsible for they after years of living in dashlar in they were eventually um and they had two children mm. the um eldest of whom was a young lad um who and this was the entire reason for their decision to um put up with to endure in terrible terrible conditions of repatriation forcible uh, detention repatriation back to shanxi and so on and so forth they wanted to see their children through higher education in particular their son so this is another area i mean i don't dwell on this aspect of the gendered constitution of li fuying in this chapter but i come to it um back to it in the conclusions but they um so they in um 2008 or 2009 i no longer recall the exact date they were offered um and li fuying by the way had earned um a living as an unlicensed pedicab cyclist um taking people around the neighborhood and and through the local tourist spots um until that was outlawed that was prohibited in the run up to the olympics um in 2007 um and 2008 of course eventually in 2009 i think it must have been he and his wife through um some connection they were offered a job um as um garbage collectors living in a tiny room um under a walkway on the um one side of the temple of heaven and um they it was a tiny tiny room um but the neighbors um and they didn't have to pay rent there either they also they felt that their landlord was a good man who um he was a migrant as well who um they felt treated them very generously if they needed time off because they were tired or sick he didn't mind um and their neighbors were other migrant people and um we used to i used to visit them there 
And there was one memorable occasion in the summer of, I guess it was 2010, um, when we were sitting underneath the um, underpass. Um, they took the ta little table out of their room and we were sitting in the heat of the afternoon eating watermelon. And um, they just said, you know, we can sit here and these horrible Beijingers are not going to bother us. And, um, you know, at least, you know, we don't, <laughs> yes, they, I mean, the way they put it was, you know, there's, there, there's not going to be anybody who lets their dog piss on our doorstep. That was what they said. <laughs> and um, so that's where they were. And their source of distress, their main source of distress at that time was their son who um, didn't show any signs of wanting to marry. He, by this time, he was, what, 26, 27, something like that. He had a girlfriend who um, they didn't like and who it seems didn't like them particularly either. She also was a migrant. She was from uh, the countryside somewhere or other. And um, this... this um, moment when we were sitting in under the underpass eating watermelon was in fact when the son was there and mm. the father was saying so and it was in one of the moments when the son had broken it off with his girlfriend and um so um there wasn't exactly jubilation i mean the, the father was very respectful of the son and the son and the father by the way had an incredibly powerful bond of affection um which um i mean it was just incredibly strong and you could see it in the way they looked at each other and the way they can attended to what each other was saying and listened to each other and so on anyway to cut a long story short listeners can tell that you know i get kind of quite moved <laughs> in relating this story and um to cut a long story short um, by 2014, the son had um, not only got back together with his girlfriend, but had, um, I'm just, yes, I have got my dates right, but had had a baby with his girlfriend and was living in a flat in an apartment in one of the northern suburbs of Beijing. So um, I this was an occasion, the last time I saw Li, Li Ying and his wife, in fact, and um, I phoned him to make an arrangement to meet him. And on the phone, he said, um, I said, so how are you? He said, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And we're living with my son now. And my son's had a baby. So I thought, oh, great. So this is going to be a really lovely reunion with him. He got off the train. I got to the station in this northern suburb before he did. And he got off the train. And all I can say is that his face was one of just totally abject misery. And it turned out that far from living with his son. In fact, he and his wife had um, attempted to live with their son and their new little grandson, the first grandchild that they'd had, um, but it hadn't worked out. And um, it, it just, um, 
it so we but then Li Puying he insisted that I went to see the sun and I to which my response was are you sure this is wise and I realized that he wanted me to go with him to see the sun maybe because he hoped that that might um reintroduce some new some some more kind of positive communication with his son so we turned up at um his son's apartment together with Li Fuying's wife and um the apartment was it was quite large but it was very very bare it was extremely dirty and um Li Fuying's son who I had known as an extremely charming, sociable, good-looking young man. He looked um unkempt and was clearly at his wit's end. His wife um was in an adjacent bedroom with the baby. She didn't come out even to say hello to me, let alone to her parents-in-law, and mm-hmm. the son just spent his time rushing between us and um his wife in the adjacent bedroom so you know i invented an excuse to leave as soon as i possibly could because the the scene was just miserable in the extreme and the next day um i'm just getting to an end of this story to the end of this story the next day i went to see li puying and his wife who far from living in an apartment as their son did lived were living in mm-hmm. it's the only slum i have ever seen in china and you know i used to live in mexico for many many years so i'm well acquainted with what you know mexican um suburban slums look like and this looked ju- it, it was just indescribably awful they mm-hmm. lived i mean i describe this in detail in the chapter but they um they they you know li fuying was sobbing and you know just said you know this is my grandson my, my I, a grandson should be a thing to celebrate but i just don't know how to do that and even at one point he said maybe i should ask my son to pay me back for the 30 years that i helped him through education and so on i mean he was he was voicing this in anger of course and um i eventually i mean it was just a horrible horrible scene so if anybody's interested in finding more of the detail of this scene it is there in the chapter so um eventually um i left and that's the last time i saw li fuying and mm-hmm. his son but his son did um email me in 2016 and told me that li fuying and his wife had returned to shanxi and um i now know that um the son also went to see them in shanxi i mean i don't record that in the book because that happened after the book after i'd finished the manuscript for the book but so it seems that there's been some kind of um renewed communication between them but you know the, so the hopes and the the endurance that this couple put themselves through was in the expectation that their son would eventually marry return to Xi'an to Shanxi have a child and support 
um, his parents in their um, last years. So the tragedy of their expectations of filial behavior on the part of their son was just that. And um, it's something that Steve Sangren also talks about, the tragedy of, of filial expectations. Yeah. Yeah. And just so our listeners understand the context a bit more, because you mentioned, um, I mean, I, I mentioned the kind of the lack of the infrastructure and you've described these conditions that, that um, Li Fuying and his wife, that they lived in, that they moved from one, from Dashalar to this um, place, um, this room near a temple of heaven and so forth. But just so our listeners know that also you did, do describe in great detail um, in the chapter, how they were evacuated on numerous accounts yeah. and put into detention centers, both in Beijing and in Shanxi. So kind of the movement mm. of, of, um, of this couple just for, um, just, just because they're trying to get by, just because they want to li- live in Beijing and um, do anything other than return to their village in Shanxi, where, um, where they kind of, where, where Harriet describes um, their living conditions in Shanxi was basically extremely um, lawless. Lawless. I mean, lawless, yeah. Exactly. I mean, I think it's worth um, adding here that you know we're talking about a period when the Chinese state has made a lot, um, and indeed um, Western governments have made a lot of the way in which the Chinese state has been trying to um, formulate and implement a system of law. The um, the experience of law that Li Fuying and his um, wife developed was, of course, um, violence and um, lawlessness, corruption mm-hmm. and brutality. Yeah, and it it, it really adds to that level of tragedy, um, as Harry just, just described, because. Um, it was really all of this was done for the effort of of this son and the daughter. Um, I mean, but the daughter, right, yeah. the daughter was, you know, not as 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 I don't think that the daughter was as prominent, um, as important a figure in their imaginations of their future as their son was. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, if you don't mind, I'm gonna kind of shift on to chapter six of your book, which yep. um, which is one of the, which is the second last chapter of Beijing from Below. And in these last two chapters, you kind of um, reshift your gaze to, to look more at the kind of heritage scheme that's yep. taking, or the heritage industry that's that's been developing in, in obviously across Beijing, across China, but specifically looking at how it's been developing in, in Dashalar. And in chapter six, you specifically look at the story of Zhang Huiming and her husband, um, and you look at kind of how they're how they've had access to commercial opportunities. Um, and here we begin to get get a different understanding of the types of people who who have access to cultural capital mm-hmm. and the right type of material conditions to benefit from this heritage industry that's being imposed on Dashalar. Um, maybe you could tell us a bit more about the role that. Dashalar residents have been able to take um, in the heritage industry, specifically um, through Zhang Huiming and and her husband's story? Yeah. I mean, um, 
again, I mean, I'll try and um, be as succinct as I can, but I can't promise. The Zhang Huiming, the so they lived in a big cluttered courtyard or one room that was divided into two at the back of a big cluttered courtyard, courtyard that Zhang Huiming had been born into and grew up in. And she was very, very proud of her family heritage um, that was quite, um, in her terms, and in, certainly in Dashalar terms, was quite um, cultured and um, artistically minded. Her husband was, and this became apparent very, very early on when I got to know them, he was a relatively good amateur calligrapher. He had worked for the um, official tourist agency, so he had had a license um, to work as a pedicab cyclist. And he, um, as a licensed cyclist, of course, he enjoyed a kind of protection from um, the police and the uh, patrol officers that the unlicensed pedicab drivers like Li Puying and so on did not enjoy. He also made use of um, his connection, his clients, um, as he drove his pedicab around to sell his calligraphy. And as I say, I'm, I mean, I have a number of pieces of his calligraphy. I, I guess... You know, the irony here is that um, he was able to make a bit of extra money dwelling on his wife's family history, the history of the courtyard and his local knowledge. He was um, locally known, by the way, as the old professor, um, or at least that's how I describe the local nickname that was given to him, because he was, you know, he made cultural capital out of his knowledge of um, old Beijing, so-called, of his um, familiarity with the history of old Beijing. And he could also make a bit of extra money selling his um, calligraphy. So, you know, he was in a position, if you like, both culturally and um, socially and economically to benefit from the heritage reinvention of old Beijing in a way that um, none of the others whose um, I've already described were able to do. The irony, of course, in this was that the old Beijing that he could benefit from, both culturally and commercially, was fast becoming a thing of the past. And um, you know, it was far sort of disappearing as a spatial and physical entity. So I think it's interesting that as I got to know, I mean, the main research for this book ended in 2014. And the years between 2012 and 2014, he had become um, increasingly reliant with me in his conversations with me, at any rate, on um, his work as a calligrapher and had become, and sort of, I found myself pressurized to buy um, some pieces from him. And I realized in this that, you know, maybe um, as um, the spatial and physical 
um, structure of Dashalar was dis was being replaced by a kind of gentrified, um, commercialized version of it. That he was becoming was turning to rely more and more on his kind of private um, occupation as a calligrapher. Mm. Yeah, and then we have the story of Jiayong yeah. in the final story that you lay out in, in your book in chapter seven. And he is uh, born and bred in the neighborhood in Dashilar. And you describe him as the only individual who really benefited from both um, the Maoist era yep. and more recently um, with the marketization of the economy. Yeah. Um, Sorry. So yeah, yeah, no, go ahead. I guess I was just going to ask if you could tell us a bit more about Jiayong's projects. No, and, I, I, um, I mean, um, I mean, he, he, he's, he's the, he's the only one who benefited in kind of really unmistakable ways. I mean, Zhang Huiming and her husband, they also benefited, but not to the same extent as Jiayong. And I should tell listeners that Jiayong is the only. I mean, this is his real name. And I mean, all the other people, in fact, wanted me to use their names, but because of the sensitivity of the whole um, program of demolition and um, regeneration in the neighborhood, I just felt it was um, that I, I felt that it was much better to protect their anonymity by um, using pseudonyms. However, Jiayong is a different kettle of fish. I mean, partly because he is known in the neighborhood. I also use some of his photographs, of course, with his permission in the book. And I wanted to credit him. He's a very, very good amateur photographer. And I wanted to credit him in the book. And I felt that I couldn't credit him and use um, a pseudonym to tell his story. So I do stick with... But you know he is, and he is a, a, a wheeler and dealer in many many ways. Jia Yong um, grew up with adopted parents in a big cluttered courtyard, opposite um, the restaurant that he ran um, in Dashlar's West Street, which is where I first got to know him in two thousand and six, two thousand and seven. Um, and his parents, his adoptive parents, were workers in, um, they were categorized as workers and they worked in a local factory. And as workers during the Mao era, they were eligible for um, health care, um, rations of food, of um, cotton. And um, so, and they had, they didn't have a comfortable um existence, but at least it was stable. You know, they had a steady monthly income. Um, Jia Yong was um, a pretty rowdy kid, as far as I can, I can understand, extremely intelligent. And he went to school locally. He also got to know a local entrepreneur who then was um, the owner and the manager of the restaurant that eventually he took over. Um, as a teenager, Jia Yong um, bicycled with a little kind of cart 
bicycled on his cart pedicab out to the suburbs of Beijing to buy um, vegetables and fruit from the collective system that he then brought back to um, his mentor, who was um, owner and manager of the restaurants I've just mentioned. And so he learnt the ropes of um, entrepreneurial activity kind of very early on um, during the Mao era. He eventually uh, went to a sports college. He also was a, um, his love, great love was a photography. And um, he, this is something that he developed later on in life as well. But he eventually went to a sports college where he met um, a very striking young woman who became his wife, who is still his wife today. He then um, he set up a so he his mentor, who was the owner and manager of the restaurant, decided to move from the restaurant into another. I think it was a cement business leaving um, Jia Yong as effective owner and manager of the restaurant. And Jia Yong decided to um, make this restaurant in um, his own by um, decorating it with his own black and white photographs, some of which I reproduce in the book, and by opening a photography shop opposite the restaurant. The workers, by the way, the, the, the um, waiters and cooks at the restaurant were almost entirely migrant workers. And they, in fact, lived in um, the house, the big cluttered courtyard in which Jiang Yong um, had grown up opposite the restaurant. Come um, the time of the Olympics, Jia Yong, and by the way, he cultivated very, very good um, relationships with local officials and with local um, artists and cultivated very, very good relationships with people working in photography, in television, in you know the cultural industries, so-called. Come the lead up to the Olympics, he decided to take over a little a space adjacent to his restaurant. He made it into a, a new kind of coffee bar, um, again, that was decorated with his own signature photographs. And um, eventually, he decided not long afterwards to turn the photography shop that he had opened opposite the restaurant into um, another, an additional dining room of the restaurant. So and through all of this, um, he used to come to Dashalar most days. He was ex an he is an extraordinarily vibrant, funny, loud, intelligent, dominating. I mean, another version of you know Beijing's strong masculinity. Um, he um, now, I think, it has made full use of the heritageization of old Beijing and is now um, fully um, inserted into that aspect of the heritage industry. 
he, in the meantime, um, his relationships with officials have developed um, in leaps and bounds, as far as I can tell. And he um, records and photographs and films meetings and banquets that officials hold through these kinds of connections. He has also been able to benefit through, um, he has gone on delegations with these officials to Germany, to former Eastern Europe, to Xinjiang, to Shanghai, to all sorts of places. He and his wife, by the way, they live in a large gated community to the south of Dashalar. But, um, and I think the, you know, the final point I want to make about Jiayong's story is that even though he doesn't live there, place has been very, very central to his own um, self-representation as a member, an entrepreneurial, a successful entrepreneur in old Beijing. Yeah, and... Um... And just to add to that, um, just I mean the way I interpret it, I, I'm not familiar with his photographs. It's just through through reading um, chapter seven, Jiayong's chapter that, that you have his photos there. Um, it's not a romanticization of Dashalai that he's that he's interested in um, kind of marketing. You know, a lot of his photos are also the reconstruction of Tianmen, um, which is you know, which kind of circulates or is just north of, of Dashalar. So he has, um, my understanding or the way that you describe his projects in Dashalar and his attachment to Dashalar is not to hold on to this market marketed nostalgic um, kind of packaged good of, of heritage. Rather, he seems to kind of understand the multiplicity of, of what the place is and, and also kind of be honest with his attachment to that through his through his photos and his art. Yep. I think that's well put. I mean I think that that, that you know one of the things about Jiayong, he he is both he's all of these things at the same time. He has a deep, deep sense of the historicity of Dashalar and he not only has photographed um the demolition and reconstruction of the neighborhood, he's also collected um, wooden screens, um, stones and bricks and old broken bits of mirrors from the local demolition sites. And um, I don't know that he has any clear idea of what he wants to do with these material objects, but certainly they are there as a record of a world that no longer exists, but at the same time, and I think that it's safe to say that there is a kind of certain nostalgia um, recorded in his photographs, but that's not, I mean, nostalgia is not the most prominent thing about Jiayong. So at the same time, mm -hmm. he also makes use of the commercial and cultural um, opportunities that the heritageization of old Beijing offer him in his own and his family's material interests. Mm, mm, so, mm. you know, he, and, and I think, you know, finally, I mean, what I would like to say is that, you know, he um, personifies a way in which 
you know, the private, in order to be successful, um, really relies on a certain amount of patronage and um, privileging or patronage, let's just call it patronage, by um, officials as a way of, you know, building up cultural capital, which then can be transferred into a more evidently commercial and economic capital. Yeah, yeah, that's, thank you for clarifying that. And um, what also was really striking for me about Jayong's character, and, and, and of course, this is an underlying theme throughout the book, is, is space. And as you just mentioned um, before I made the comment about um, his photos, is that, you know, that he returns to Dachelar, is this kind of attachment to Dachelar, and that's each of the characters that, that, that your chapters make up of. They all kind of they, there's this coming and going, even though there's there's still there's an attachment, there's um, there's stillness, but there's also a lot of mobility and and return and this kind of it draws everyone together into this to this part of Beijing. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really not um, that's that's it's a it's rare that that um, putting together. Um, whether it's a book or a film or a piece of art that really is able to to capture that um, in the amount of detail that you've done. So it's really, I think it's very rare to come across something like that. Um, well, thank you. So, yeah. It took a long um, time. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it did. <laughs> um, and I feel like I've taken up a lot of your time <laughs> this afternoon as well. Um, I really want to thank you for for putting time aside to to talk about your book. And um, do you want to tell um, you know what are you what are you working on nowadays? Um, what are you thinking about these days? Um, what have you been doing since Beijing from Below was published, even though it's only been a couple of months? Yeah. Okay. Well, there are a couple of things. I mean, I'm I'm co-editing a book called Grassroots Value. Um, grassroots values, which, together with the anthropologist uh, Michael Rowlands, and um, this it really looks at um, grassroots. It's something that will interest you, Suvi. Um, mm. It's um, it looks at notions of cultural value. Otherwise, um, in local communities, mainly in southern China, southwest from southwestern China right the way through to Qianzhou. And um, it really is an attempt to interrogate. I mean, it's an ethnographically based um, study of um, how local communities left to their own devices might um, think about the cultural value of their own communities in distinction to and maybe in contestation of the kind of top-down imposition of official notions of cultural heritage. So, you know, it's an interrogation, if you like, of grassroots notions of cultural value that then become absorbed by or even feed into um, the discourse of cultural heritage. So that's one thing. And um, with any luck, that'll come out next year. And by the way, most of the contributors to that volume are young Chinese academics. Um, the second thing that um, I've been doing, in fact, um, is um, sort of more activist, and it is really 
you know, China um, is um, at a very, very difficult moment now for all sorts of reasons. And I think that it is very necessary for us to kind of stand, for me as a scholar and as a teacher, to stand back from my own research to think about, okay, you know, what is it that how actually do I analyze China at this particular juncture of its recent history? And um, I'm um, in the process of organizing various public events to do precisely that, a bit um, along the lines of the Verso and Critical China Scholars um, webinar that uh, Rebecca Carl was um, involved in. Then finally, what I want to return to is, I mean, I mentioned before that I lived, used to live in Mexico. I lived in Mexico for five years. And one of the research projects that I've never taken on, but I really want to, um, really concerns the cultural history of the ties between Latin America and China going back to the middle of the 19th century. And um, I'm um, in the very, very early stages of trying to organize a bunch of um, scholars um, in London, starting in London, but not exclude and, and in Latin America and in China to really kind of begin to think about how um, this project might be um, might be progressed because it again I mean it's a chapter of China's overseas history and Latin America's recent history that hasn't been told so I look forward to being able to work more on that well well we also look forward to to reading and learning and hearing more about how all these many projects that you're working on unfold. Um, for now, I want to thank you for putting time aside to, to join us today and to talk about your work. Thank you so much, Harriet. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Sylvie. It's been a great pleasure for me as well. Thank you very much.